So, you probably heard me say this nine times now, but the story of Samuel is brilliant. It's just a great story. There are armies lined up, clashing against one another. Uh, Heroes dueling. There are giants shouting blasphemy and weeping kings and witches and all sorts of crazy, awesome stuff. It doesn't get better than this. Um, And there's this interesting thing that happens when I read the story of Samuel, and that's that I get so entranced by the details of each individual story that sometimes I can get lost in those details. Sometimes I can forget the broad purpose of the story because, man, every single individual episode is just so cool. So what I want to do before we even get started in this passage this morning is is step back really quick and remember that this story is about God who is kind and loving and merciful and who adores His people and who is chasing after His people. And then it's also about His people who are ever shaking their fists at the heavens and running, chasing after idols. You can think about it as, as if the story is about two characters. God, the kind, and God's people, the rebellious. Okay? And, and keep that in mind because this is yet another story where you can get lost in the characters. But we're going to talk today about the merciful kindness, the loving kindness of God. So... Last time we we read from Samuel, we read the first half of Saul's introduction. Saul, the replacement king of Israel. And remember, the people rejected God as king. That's how we get Saul. And that rejection is something that they've been doing for years and years. And this time, they didn't just ignore God or imprison God's prophets or worship other gods... This time, the people asked for a king like the nations. They didn't want God to be their protector any longer. They didn't want God to rescue them and to keep them safe anymore. They wanted a king like the other nations had. So God in His wrath said, okay. And at that moment, when God and Samuel stood exasperated before the people after pleading with them and warning them, At that moment, the camera pans to young Saul. And we read the first half of Saul's introduction last month. And what we read was troubling. If you were to choose a king to lead the people of God, it wouldn't be Saul. In fact, Saul's the last guy on the planet that you'd choose to lead the people of God. Because Saul, more than anyone in Israel, is exactly like the nations around them. And here's what I mean. We learned very quickly a handful of things about Saul that teach us who he is and what he's like and how he thinks. And here's what we learned. First, we learned that Saul's hometown is the bed of Israel's corruption. There is no place darker or scarier or more oppressive than Gibeah of Benjamin. In the city square, Gibeah, 
There are drunken rapists and the worst order of men. They did terrible things to a daughter of Israel. Murder of the worst sort. Unthinkable. And we also know that Benjamin is purely, in military terms, the strongest tribe in Israel. And we know that because when the people of Israel watched this horrible episode of rape and murder unfold in their own backyard, and they say, give us these men, they need justice, we need justice here. The tribe of Benjamin rose up and murdered 40,000 Israelites. This is Saul's hometown. Saul's family is wealthy and powerful. They are architects in the bed of corruption among the people of Israel. And if that were all we learned about Saul, that would be enough, but we learn a lot more. We learn that he's rich and tall and handsome, which seems benign, I suppose, except that Everything in the Bible to this point is clear that God saves the humble and the low and that the rich and the powerful are often the worst kind of rebels. Third, we learn that Saul is a bad shepherd. Which is odd because all of the heroes of Israel, all, all of them are humble. All of the most God-honoring fathers of Israel were shepherds and they were good at it. But not Saul. Saul loses donkeys, of all things. And he wanders the countryside aimlessly for days to find them. That, that is, until at last he gives up. Good shepherds don't give up on their sheep. We learn that when Jesus talks about what he does for his sheep. Fourth, we learn that Saul knows nothing of the work of God. Even though it's happening in his own backyard. Samuel's home in Ramah is five miles from Saul's home in Gibeah. Five miles. And yet, and Samuel, his reputation is known throughout Israel. Everybody knows who Samuel is because Samuel is the vessel of the rescue of the people of God. He's, he is the instrument that God has chosen to redeem his people. Yet Saul knows nothing of Samuel. He doesn't know God's man, and he doesn't know God's work. Finally, we learn that Saul fundamentally misunderstands how God works. He goes to the man of God because he needs to find donkeys, which itself is an indictment. Yet he refuses to go to the man of God until he can find a bribe. He believes that he can buy the work of God, and that the man of God is a tool to get what he wants for a price. He doesn't know God. And he doesn't want God. He wants God's stuff. And he doesn't get how God works. And so what we learn about the replacement king of Israel isn't happy news at all. He's the worst kind of king. A, a king just like the nations. And that's where we left off. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Samuel 10. Well, we're going to keep reading. As Saul and his servant went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. 
As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. So we've arrived at this interesting scene. The replacement king, for all intents and purposes, is blind. He has wandered aimlessly through the hills for days, a blind shepherd searching for his missing donkeys. And when he finally gives up, we learn that he's blind to the work of God. And when he learns about the man of God, we learn that he's blind to the ways of God. So in just a few words, we learn that on every level that could possibly mean anything for the people of Israel, Saul, who will be their king, is blind. Blind as a bat. Groping about for lost donkeys and prophets. Now, for some time, I'd wondered why we are interrupted with this brief explanation about the word seer. We read it last time. Right in the middle of an otherwise pretty straightforward story, everything stops and we read these words. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And then the story goes on as if nothing had happened. And the only difference between this story and any other before or after is that the prophet of God is called a seer. A seer instead of a prophet. And for years this has confused me. Why just here at this moment, why use the word seer to tell this story? It's not necessary. You could tell the story and use the word prophet and it wouldn't change much at all, right? But when you go and take a step back and realize what this story is about, it's about Saul, the blind, meeting Samuel, the seeing. All of a sudden, it makes sense. Because that is what this story is about. Saul, who is blind, is functionally replacing Samuel, who sees clearly as judge and leader of Israel. And that's madness. It should be clear that it's madness. Rebellion is madness. You should, you should never, listen, you should never ever reject God. Ever. God sees. And we are blind without Him. Just like blind Eli. You remember blind Eli? High priest, corrupted, lost and without hope. Just like Blind Saul, a king just like the nations, blind and groping about, hopeless. That's us without God. That that is who we are. We have nothing outside of the grace and mercy and work of God. And the people of Israel have just rejected God in exchange for a blind king. But there is still hope for God's rebel people. And that's what the second half of this story is about. Keep reading. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. 
That was pretty cool. <laughs> he shall save my people. Listen. You shall anoint Saul to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said, Here is the man about whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Okay, so if you step back a moment, you'll see that what just happened is huge. A few details are crystal clear to this point in the story. We know that God has faithfully delivered His people from harm over and over and over and over and over again. And we know that God's people have turned away from Him over and over and over and over and over again. And we know that their rebellion has now culminated in their demand for a replacement. And we know that this replacement king looks just like the nations. Godless, blind, and proud. And yet, at this moment, God is working feverishly to protect and to preserve His people. God's mission to rescue His people is unstoppable. God's mercy is unstoppable. God's mission to rescue and to preserve His people will not be stopped. Not by sin, not by rejection, not by pride or murder or hatred or death. Not even by a replacement king. God's mission to rescue His people is unstoppable. This moment, when we learn that God still speaks to Samuel of the rescue of his people, when we learn that despite their rejection, which is itself a new and deeper kind of rejection, God yet seeks to deliver his people. When we hear words that mean very clearly that God will not rest until his people are rescued, this moment is the centerpiece of Saul's introduction. Think about that for a moment. This is our first introduction to the replacement king. The king that the people demanded instead of God. And we've just been reminded by God himself that this demand is yet another layer of rejection that has characterized the people since the dawn of their liberty. They haven't ever not rejected God. This is who they are. They hate God. Though He has set them apart. Though He has broken their chains. Though He has escorted them lovingly through a wilderness. Though He has rained bread down from heaven to feed them. Though He has caused rocks to weep so they could have fresh water. Though he has fought for them and spoken with them, they have hated him and rejected him 
at every turn. And now we have a new and deeper rejection. And you would expect that God at this moment would turn away, would say, fine people, have it your way. Here's your king and all of his corruption. Take him and go. Who wouldn't say that? But that isn't what happens. God is always working. Always working to rescue his people despite their rejection. He is always at work to rescue his people. Behold the grace and mercy of God. While we are shaking our fists at the heavens, he is hearing our cries of pain and he's working to rescue and to redeem us. Praise the Lord. Hanging on the cross they crafted, from nails they drove into his hands, Jesus cries, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There is nothing like the grace and mercy of God. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. I'm giving them what they asked for. And that is in its own way a judgment against them. Yet I will keep them and I will rescue them from their enemies. And I will restrain them. Because these are my people. And I will not leave them or forsake them. So we see here that God is doing two things through Saul. The replacement king. And he's doing it for one reason. Two things, one reason. First, he's preserving them from destruction. Saul will save God's people from the hands of the Philistines. This people is the enemy of God's people. And they rally in battle against them. And they would crush them. And they would enslave them. So God equips Saul with strength to preserve his people and to deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. I'm going to come down here and get a tissue because I'm almost always a weepy mess. And I, I usually it's Tara who brings me one of these and she's in China right now. So the first thing is he's protecting his people. And the second thing is he's restraining his people. Restraining. What, is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be placed in restraints? To be bound. To be shackled. It means that you can't go wherever you want to go. You put restraints on men and women when they're likely to hurt themselves or others. When we want to protect them from themselves... We restrain them. God is actively working to restrain His people 
who otherwise would descend into absolute depravity, corruption. Why? Why is it? Why is he at work to preserve and to protect his people? Haven't they continued to reject him? Hasn't he been replaced? Well, the answer is right there. Their cry has come to me. Mercy. The mercy of God working to preserve and to restrain his people because he has compassion on them, even in their rebellion. Keep reading. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the tribes of Israel? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Okay, so there's a lot going on here. But what I want to do is take it piece by piece. First, there's an old man standing precisely where the young ladies told Saul that Samuel would be. And in yet another display of blind ineptitude, Saul approaches him, not with a respectful greeting, but with a dumb question. And this is a funny moment, because here we find the first king of Israel meeting for the first time the last judge of Israel. And you would expect a moment of grandeur. This is huge. This is a big change for the people of Israel. A king. The first king meeting the last judge. This should be a moment. But here... Saul is finding an old man standing exactly where the young ladies told him the old man of God would be standing. And he's asking stupid questions. Uh, hey, uh, hey, old man, look, I've been wandering for days and I'm tired. My feet hurt. Look, man, do you know where the seer lives? Apparently, he, he's an old man kind of like you. I need to talk to him. Do you know where he is? Because I asked those girls back there where the seer would be, and they said he'd be standing like right here, like right exactly where you're standing. Any ideas, old man hanging around in a place like here that looks kind of like you? Okay, seriously. It's silly because it's supposed to be. And listen to Samuel's response. I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? He knows. He knows exactly who Saul is. 
And he knows what Saul's doing. And he knows what Saul cares about. And he knows who Saul is and, who, and how Saul will treat the people of Israel. Perfect perception. Perfect clarity. Are you sure you want a blind replacement king, people? Samuel's words here are important, I think, because they begin to give us a picture of how Saul is going to relate to the people of God. And this is the first moment in a series of moments in this passage that will foreshadow Saul's reign. Samuel says that Saul shouldn't worry about his donkeys anymore. For two reasons, not one. First, because they've been found. That's the clear, obvious one. And second, don't worry about your three donkeys, Saul, because everything that you could ever want belongs to Israel and therefore belongs to you. What what does that mean? For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Do you remember the warnings, Samuel's warnings, about the coming king? The replacement king will take your sons and your daughters and your servants and your stuff. Samuel has just told Saul that he'll be king and that he'll take whatever he wants from the people of Israel whenever he wants it. This is a prophecy and it is an indictment. One sentence foretelling the ascension and the corruption of Saul, king of Israel. I was reading ahead this week and You know, just after the story of David and Goliath, Saul is still king and David is a young boy. And Saul says, who's that guy to his general? And his general says, I don't know. So he goes to David and says, who who do you belong to, basically? And David says, I'm the son of Jesse. And then... Jesse sends a servant to, or Saul sends a servant to Jesse and says, I want this kid to stay, stick around. That's how Saul relates to the people of Israel. I like this guy, he's staying with me. One more detail to note. Listen to Saul's response. We're not sure how much Saul understands at this point. But we do know that Saul's beginning to see that something significant is happening. And that it means honor for him on some level. And he responds with these words. Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is, is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Israel, or tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Now, this is, I think, biblical wordplay at its finest. We don't know, look, we don't know if Saul's being genuine. But knowing as much as we do know about Saul, we shouldn't expect anything here but false modesty. Even if you gave him the benefit of the doubt, listen to what he says. I am a Benjamite, the least of the tribes of Israel, and my clan is the humblest of Israel that tribe. 
So stop for a moment and think about those words. What do we know about Benjamin? It's the mightiest, most powerful tribe in Israel. That's what we know. And what do we know about Saul's family? We know that it's wealthy and powerful. So at least at face value, none of these words are true. At face value, none of these words are true. Yet in reality, Benjamin is the least of the tribes of Israel. The most corrupted, the most wicked, the most shameful tribe of Israel. And Saul's clan, though wealthy and powerful, though handsome and tall, Saul's clan is from Gibeah, the Sodom and Gomorrah of Israel. Not humblest, certainly, but least. So Saul's response seems plagued by false modesty. Indeed, we can't expect that he means anything other than, who, me? (laughs) Me? Really? I must protest. But Saul's words have tragic gravity in this context because Saul is the future king of Israel and he truly is the least qualified. Keep reading. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with guests. So this uh, gets into the details of how Israelites eat. So if you haven't systematically recorded those details in the law, then you might miss something. But this here is the second instance of foreshadowing that we encounter in this passage. Saul sits at the head of the table full of Samuel's honored guests, And Samuel asked the servants to bring out the portion that he set aside. And Saul's served not merely a fine fillet. He's given the leg. This is the priest's portion. Saul the king takes the priest's portion. And and not many years later... In a fit of cowardice, Saul will stand in place of the priest and initiate an unlawful sacrifice because he's terrified that God won't rescue his people. And that moment is the beginning of the end of Saul. So this picture of Saul dining on this leg is not just a, you know, meaningless picture of Saul and Samuel sharing a nice meal. Saul has sitting, he's seated in, this, in, the, in the place of honor and consuming that which is only right for priests. And later on, we're going to see that unfold in a really harsh way. Keep reading. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called, up, called to Saul on the roof, and said, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Therefore, or tell, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here 
yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and placed it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has stopped caring about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men are going up to Bethel, to God at Bethel, to meet you there. One carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of of bread, where you shall accept them from your hand. After that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come into the city... You will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine and flute and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Okay, so a few things to note. First, the Lord is obviously all over this thing. He is at work and His sovereignty over this situation is very clear. How do we know that? First, because he's speaking clearly and perceptively to Samuel and to Saul. Remember that the Word of God doesn't frequently visit the people of Israel in these days. Samuel speaks with God more than any have in years, but this isn't a season of prophetic utterance. The Word of God is rare, and yet he speaks three times in this passage. Second, we know that because he's demonstrating his work perfectly to Saul. So that Saul can't help but see the hand of God at work in his own calling. Samuel articulates clearly what would happen to Saul in the next 24 hours. And it happens just as he said it would. So if any doubt remained in Saul's heart as to the veracity of Saul's prophecy, or Samuel's prophecy, that doubt is dispelled. From this moment on, Saul has no choice but to admit that God has placed him as king. Keep that in mind. Because he's going to be hiding in the baggage next week. Third, we know that God is all over this thing because God's signs to Saul demonstrate that he is sovereign over the donkeys, over the words, over the people, over the prophets, and over the kings. What's about to happen to Saul is a mirror of what just happened to Saul. Think about it for a moment. Saul will be told that his donkeys have returned, just like Samuel told him when he arrived at the city gates. Saul will be given sacrificial food, just as Samuel gave Saul sacrificial food. 
Saul will receive the anointing of the Spirit, just as Samuel has just anointed him with oil. This prophecy is a statement about how God works. Saul's experience of the work and the anointing of God are duplicated. The first half was happening before Saul had any clue that God was at work. This prophecy says clearly, it says, I am working and I have been working. And that's the truth. God is working. And He has been working to preserve and to restrain His people. It may not be clear at this moment, but God has been working to rescue His people. And He is working to rescue His people. And He will be working to rescue His people until they are rescued fully and finally in a kingdom that never ends. And that's our story. All right, keep reading. One last thing. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. And the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? So Saul, the blind replacement king, turns away from Samuel the seer the last and brightest judge of Israel. These are, in many ways, the first moments of the new era of the people of God. And yet, the story ends on a note of ridicule. So what do we make of this? The last few sentences of Saul's introduction. First, note that God moves in the heart of Saul. You, you shouldn't expect this. You wouldn't expect this sort of movement in the heart of one so godless, so unqualified, so corrupted, and so inept. Yet, it is so. God works in the heart of Saul, and He does it for His people. If you remember nothing from this text, remember this. The Lord is always at work to preserve and to restrain His people. The Lord uses insufficient and unqualified people to preserve and to restrain His people. The king and his coming kingdom are not subverted by the replacement kings of men. The Lord will use any and every means to prepare His people for the true king of Israel. That's the most important truth that we learn from this passage. God's mission to protect and to restrain His people is unstoppable. He is always at work using whatever means to rescue His people. He won't be thwarted in His mission to protect and to restrain and to rescue the people of God. So when we see Saul overwhelmed with a spirit of prophecy, we should see God's work of mercy on display. This is the mercy of God to use inept men 
to see His people to His kingdom. One last thing. Look at how this story ends. When Saul's people learn of his prophecies, they laugh. Rightfully so. These words, it's a Hebrew insult about Saul. Well, it's inappropriate. But basically what it means is that Saul's a bastard child. Um, They're mocking him. They're mocking him because they know who he is. It's noteworthy that you're not left with the impression that Saul is made new, totally changed, uncorrupted. His reputation remains, and we'll see soon that it's earned. Saul may be used by God to preserve and to restrain his people, but Saul's heart is not like the heart of God. And that should teach us something about God and men. God is always at work, kind and patient, rescuing His people. And He may at times use men along the way who do not reflect His patience and His kindness and His love. Don't be discouraged by these men. They are but a dark moment in the history of God's people. His mission and His kingdom are unstoppable. These men are tools in His hand, but don't confuse them with His work. We'll see over the next few months, God genuinely works in miraculous ways through a corrupt replacement king. This says much about the worth and the love of God. It says nothing about the worth and the love of Saul. We speak often of the glory of God. We're reformed. Glory is like the ninth word in every single one of our sentences. Do you know what that means, the glory? The glory of God. Do you know what it means when we say that God alone will be glorified? That all glory terminates on Him? It means that every ounce of love Every ounce of faithfulness, every ounce of sacrifice must always be attributed to His work, to His Spirit, to His Son. God is the actor in this romance. It is He who rescues. It is God who loves. It is God who saves. It is God who forgives. It is He who speaks and who acts and who befriends. Don't don't be confused. Never be confused. All men are broken vessels. God chooses to display His mercy through broken vessels. And that's good news because men can be awful. And when they are, we shouldn't be surprised. I feel like the enemy is perpetually making major press 
of Christians or seeming Christians who after years of ministry, you you find out that they've been in sin. And the fear is that when you see that unfolds, your faith is going to collapse. That is if your faith is in the work of men and not in the work of God. Because when you read the story of Saul, you can't help but notice that God uses inept men to proclaim the goodness of the gospel. It is always God at work. Any good thing. That that trickles down too if you have a spouse who's good and kind and who cares for you. If you find yourself adoring the spouse, period, then you're off. It's good to adore your spouse who is reflecting the love and care of God. I love my kids. I love them. They're great. You guys are awesome. And when I feel my heart full of joy because of their smile or their laughter, I have, I have to remember not to love them. Period. But to love the beauty and the giggles and the joy that is a gift from God. Always it is God working. When orphans and widows are cared for, it's always God caring. He is the actor. He is the driver of all good things. Every good comes from Him. He alone is worthy of our affection. He is alone worthy of our worship because He will use anything at His disposal to rescue His people. So that's the passage, right? That's everything we just read is the passage. And probably when you're thinking God's people, you're thinking like the people of Israel, but stop it. If you are in Christ, you are God's people. And as God was carefully working to restrain his people from further sin and to protect them, that's your story. If you're in Christ, I have still nightmares about the sin that corrupted me. Or that was an expression of my corruption before I was in Christ. Sometimes I plead with God to destroy my memories. But yet in that season, He was caring for me. I feel like this is the story of our lives. So when you read of God's patient and kindness and mercy and grace flowing on the people of Israel who are shaking their fists at Him and hating Him and turning away from Him and rejecting Him. That's you. And, it, and it's sure, it's you before, but it's you now too because when you embrace sin, when you run after that thing that is just enticing you at that moment, you're this guy. And yet, He's patiently and kindly, kindly rescuing you from your wickedness. There is more grace 
Let's pray.